Mara and Patrick Chenu live in Denver, Colorado. In 2015, they decided to buy a farm in Cameroon, where Patrick is originally from, to grow cacao. We didn't intend to be chocolate makers. We started the farm and, you know, the original intention was to sell B2B to other chocolate makers. Their first harvest was ready to go in 2020, the year the pandemic started and the world changed. Circumstances pushed Mara and Patrick into creating their own unique single source product line of premium chocolates, which they branded Bibamba. There's a value to to what we've created and all the care and energy, the sustainability and the ethical side to the chocolate industry. And that's that's what you're you're getting. That's what you're paying for when you do buy a premium chocolate product. So how do they overcome all of the many challenges of creating this full value chain from scratch? And what are the pros and cons of living in the US while operating a farm in a country like Cameroon? People in Cameroon, they are so happy, um, especially in, in the village. They're so happy to see that the chocolate made with cocoa coming from those that region is actually being presented on the other side of the world as uh, uh, in the West as uh, high quality cocoa for the first time. The fascinating story of a young chocolate company on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. And we really do have a cool interview for you here today. But before we dive right into that, I want to take just a moment to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is Calgary Economic Development. Now, what makes Calgary, Alberta, the engine of Canada's agriculture industry? With direct access to a strong agricultural base, Calgary is a well-connected region with collaboration across geographic areas, industries, and research and training institutions. Calgary has experts in all things ag, including primary production, crop science, protein development, ag and food tech innovation, and animal health. It's also a hub for controlled environment, agriculture, which we talked about last week, energy transition opportunities, and value-added food and beverage processing. Calgary is a hotspot for agri-food production and technology development, which is why multinational agribusiness leaders call the city home. In Calgary, they're leading the agribusiness revolution, and you are welcome to join. Visit calgaryagbusiness.com to learn more. That's calgaryagbusiness.com. Thank you so much to Calgary for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Mara and Patrick Chenu of Bibamba. This story was actually put together by my guest co-host for today's episode, Jennifer Barney. Jennifer is back to now co-host her fifth episode of the Future of Agriculture. Uh, well, the first ones that you might remember are Tefola, Seal the Seasons, Neutral Foods, and then most recently, The Ugly Company. She's a consumer packaged goods or CPG expert that lives in the Central Valley of California and got her start in the food industry about 17 years ago when she founded the almond butter brand Barney Butter. The food industry background and entrepreneurial experiences she brings to the show are really, really valuable in all the interviews she's involved with. So I really appreciate having her come back for another guest co-host opportunity. She also publishes the weekly newsletter, The Business of Food, which you can subscribe to at jenniferbarney.substack.com or just click the link that I'll leave for you in the show notes. But Jennifer, uh, welcome back to co-host yet another episode. It's great to be here, Tim. 
Yeah, well, like I said, I always appreciate your perspective as an accomplished entrepreneur and somebody who on the CPG side is working with these types of companies uh, on a day-to-day basis. And actually, maybe before we dive into things with Patrick and Mara, let's just talk a little bit about the consulting that you do. Uh, I know I've heard you talk about things like go-to-market strategy and capital raising and supply chain and branding and sourcing. And I mean, are all of those things that you are helping companies with on a regular basis? Yeah, you know, I am somewhat of a generalist, so I have helped and currently am helping on both sides of the go-to-market strategy, brand identity, what makes you unique? How do you even look at your addressable market? Do you have a good idea that likely is going to be adopted by consumers and retailers all the way to can you get your product made? And what are the unit economics and what are your margins? Because if you can't have a line of sight to profitability, even from just a contribution margin standpoint, it's going to be very, very hard unless you are you have unlimited capital yourself. It's going to be very, very hard to find funding. Now it's really about profitability and really looking at that supply chain and scrutinizing like, do you have multiple suppliers and how secure is each individual component? to making the product, not only the raw materials, but also the labor. I try to help founders look at their opportunity from both the consumer lens as well as the long-term lens. You know, who is going to continue to back you or what are your prospects for continuing to have access to capital to keep your dream alive? And then, you know, on the ag side of things, you know, um, I, I do kind of help those that want to supply because there's this desire to get closer to the farm, right? So kind of helping with all of the technical aspects of that, as well as making sure that people are in alignment with the specifications, they're in alignment with the expectations as to how heavy of a burden will development be on the producer side. Things that sometimes you don't think about when you're first starting And you're trying to kind of just forge these relationships because you really want to have transparent sourcing. And so I kind of help people on that end. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's talk about who who we have on the show with us here today. Maybe you can provide some backstory on how you came about this couple and, and what they're doing. Yes. No, I'm super excited. So, Tim, we talked to Patrick and Mara Chinu, and they are a Denver based chocolate maker. They are an artisan single origin chocolate company. And um, I found them at the farmer's market, um, a farmer's market in Denver uh, several years ago, and they had just started. And when I, you know, approached them there, I learned they have this incredible story. Patrick is originally from Cameroon, and the two of them together decided to invest in some acreage back in Cameroon. And, you know, he does not have a farming background, but Patrick is a chemical engineer Um, Mara is a a psychotherapist. I mean, these are two very intelligent, bright people, and they have made a really incredible product. So um, I'm really excited to introduce them. And uh, it was a great interview. So uh, let's dive into this episode with Patrick and Mara. it all started is I think Patrick heard a news piece or read an article about the impending chocolate shortage in the world. And, you know, he was thinking, no, that's my favorite food. I (laughs) chocolate can't go away. And I think 
as I remember him, you know, all those years ago saying it clicked for him. Well, you know, in Cameroon, we grow cacao and he grew up in the city, but he would go to the village where his grandparents live in the summers and they had cacao growing on their property there on their land. And so he had some background knowledge about that. So just connecting that, you know, that's my favorite food. Wait, I don't want it to go away. And the impending chocolate shortage is due to so many factors, climate change, younger generations not really wanting to take over family businesses and the farming practices. Yeah, because they don't see, they have not seen value into it uh, as their parents have been um, living in poverty and doing farming cocoa. Uh, so that was part of that. So that, you know, tied into the ethical part of it. We knew when we started this, it, we wanted to have employers on the farm and work directly with them and, and not do it cooperative style as a lot of other, really, it's a great model. A lot of other companies do that. So that's just a little bit more background as to how that whole idea started. And, you know, Patrick said, why, you know, why don't we start a farm in Cameroon? We can do this. We can do it better. And that's really how it started. And then we launched into it. And here we are. How did you know that you could figure out the farming part? <laughs> um, not, I mean, it sounds like you, you had exposure to those farms, but were from the city. You know, what kind of gave you the confidence that we can figure this out? We knew it would not be um, an easy task. Uh, so we naturally just start learning and connecting with uh, people in the in the field of agriculture that we thought could be helpful. For example, we had a mentor from the, the School of Agriculture at Colorado State University who really was very helpful in uh, helping us building our farming plan and telling us the things that we needed to know. And we also connected with a local train and and people in Cameroon who are in the field and um, yeah uh, engineers in agriculture and we yeah we learn from both sides to come up with a plan that is very progressive and that is also I would say adapted to the realities in Cameroon. I think there was a lot of trust with the people in Cameroon and some relationships with with GB the lead agronomist you've known him for a while yeah and I think we just, you know, did a lot of research here and, and just knowing what are the best practices, you know, like Patrick said, the professor at Colorado State University, just learning best practices and how we could implement some of that there. If we're really going to start a farm from scratch, what's the best way to lay it out so we can reduce water usage and make sure things are safe for the surrounding community? Yeah, it got to the point because of the choice of land and the, you know, our approach there, we don't do any watering. We just the plan only use the rain that you know, it receives. So. That's great. I want to get into the product itself. So on your website, it says Babamba is justice, fairness and chocolate that works for everybody. And I want to get into that piece about chocolate that works for everybody, because one of the things that attracted me to your booth at the farmer's market when I discovered you was vegan chocolate. And I personally am a milk chocolate lover. Uh, dark chocolates for me tend to be bitter. And so when I saw, well, vegan, what, you know, is he using almond milk? Is he using, you know, what, how do you make milk chocolate vegan? And so I kind of wonder if you could just walk us through your product offerings and, and your decisions around the ingredients that you use. So, so we, we have an, one of our core um, approaches, simple, 
is most of the time better. So when we developing a product, we usually start with the minimal, what we think will be the core ingredients, and then we only add additional ingredients if it's really, really needed. Um, that's how we operate in general. And we uh, learned that good fermentation usually provide very good flavors that need to be discovered, I think, when you eat chocolate. Uh, that's how we feel. And so adding usually milk, it's usually a rod that we, um, no, we don't feel it's needed and we know that there's a lot of people who really don't want to you know consume milk and so yeah we we, we try to minimize and, and another aspect is uh, roasting where you can easily kill some of the flavors kill some of the fat and stuff but a very sensitive approach of roasting allow you to maintain good quality beans and uh, roasted bean with enough um, fat that allow you to make good chocolate without dairy that is still very creamy so can we just talk a little bit about, you know, your decisions around like your skew assortment? So that would be the specific types of products that you decided to take to market and kind of you how you decided to go out to market. So you've been selling now for a couple of years. You know, we we've talked intermittently over those years and your strategy initially was to kind of, you know, spread the word through farmers markets and then get into some cafes, um, you know, some local specialty shops. And so how is it going? And in terms of what you thought would be like your lineup of product offerings, how has that been resonating with consumers? We're excited to say that we've expanded outside of Colorado. So that's been very, very wonderful for us to get into some other states. And we're trying to grow our retail presence. You know, we, we started our very first flavor was Jungle Crunch. And so that's our dark chocolate with plantain crisps. And we really, we started with just one product at that Cherry Creek Farmer's Market. And the initial response was really overwhelming and, and people loved it. It was unique and crunchy and they were purchasing it. So that gave us a lot of confidence to keep exploring with different flavor combinations. I think our second flavor was our Palms in Paradise with toasted coconut that we actually sourced from Cameroon as well. So it's really different from any coconut chocolate that customers might be used to from other brands. It's crispy and has this toasty sweetness to it. Pairs really well with the chocolate. I think now we're up to eight different products. Um, so we have five different bark flavors. We have our hot chocolate mix. And then the chocolate spread that we talked about. It's really been a really nice response to see what people are um, enjoying and what's become kind of the favorites over time. Something when I think about it that I think is interesting is that so far we haven't created any product based on what we thought people will like. I think each product covers some sort of strange story of how we ended up creating the product. And then what, what will happen is we take uh, those products to market, to farmers market and see people's response. And then people say, oh, why don't, you know, are you saying it's this in the store? Or are you saying this in, you know, this place? And, uh, and then say, oh, maybe that's uh, where we should take this product to. And um, yeah, that's how we grow. And like Mara was saying, we are in a little bit outside Colorado now and in other states. And we also grow in our online stores as we uh, try to reach more people. It's been fun to experiment. Well, Patrick is a, a chemical engineer by training, and he has this amazing science background. And 
Poor me, I have to, you know, be the taste tester a lot of the time. He'll bring home samples, um, I don't know, five or seven different combinations. So the inclusions might be a different size or, you know, how much the chocolate's been ground. There's just so many different variations and he'll bring them home and I'll kind of taste and give feedback. But we'll do that at the markets as well. We'll have our customers, you know, offer them to taste different samples before we launch a flavor and and give honest feedback because we have a really, really awesome fan base. So happy to have them. They just are so complimentary and honest. So they can let us know what's working, what's not working. And that's really helped us land on our final recipes for some of our new flavors. One question, I guess, along similar lines, you know, you all made the decision, it sounds like, to start on the supply side and buy a farm and, you know, start the nursery and start the trees from scratch and really kind of build up to the company you have today. Did you ever consider doing the opposite, you know, starting with the product and just sourcing the uh, the raw ingredients from individuals and, and then kind of building into your own supply chain? And I'm curious how you how you think about that now. So. No, we didn't consider the other way because this is part of our story. We've been really open about it, but it's not always known. We we didn't intend to be chocolate makers. We started the farm and, you know, the original intention was to sell B2B to other chocolate makers. So, you know, we started, as we mentioned, in 2015. The first harvest was in 2020. And our very first shipment to the U.S. arrived in March of 2020 as the world was shutting down. And, you know, our first harvest was in customs in Chicago for months and months and months. And, you know, everyone stopped. And that's we had already been making chocolate and experimenting. But that's really when we shifted and said, everyone's shutting down. No one's going to be buying this raw product. We really need to go with that plan B and and start doing it ourselves. So that's a little bit of how that story went. Not everybody knows that. And then the process, I think the process to actually making the decisions on, you know, actually start our own farm came to the fact that we put a lot of time trying to learn more about the supply chain because we realized that, you know, there was a reason why the world was seeing a shortage on, on cacao productions. And in learning about it, we, you know, become very, very, I mean, a lot more aware of the poverty in cocoa farming communities and the bad um, procedures, the shortcut that people was taking, just because, you know, they can't afford to, to implement good practice, to be honest. And I, and I think that that's, I think, the main reason why we decided to take the long road of actually starting the farm from scratch and learn along the road and make sure that we have the right procedures and the right mindset in place. And today we are very happy to have made that decisions and we just, you know, want to continue to be part of that conversations and improve as much as we can. And, and I know we are not the only one. There's probably other people who are doing the same thing. They're very conscientious. I hope that the industry will catch on that. And yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. That's pretty incredible. What What about the people in the community in Cameroon? Is there any tension with you not living there but owning land there, or is that very common? And uh, what what do they think of this? I mean, I'm talking about the the community, the village in which we we grow. They're actually very happy. Um, I remember when I was in Cameroon a month ago. That one day I actually went and um, and visit um, the different village and chief that was in that region. And all of them um, was so happy and and receptive, and they say you know how great you know um, relationship with the with the village has been, and how much they have you know people have learned, and 
improving um, um, their crops, their own crops, you know, and they were very happy. They were very happy with the way our employees have been behaving, interacting with the village because they all come from different villages and also how we have been employed um, a lot of people in the village, the place that is very explaining a lot of poverty. So, yeah. I think they're excited to see, you know, it's, they can be on the farm in the jungle and still have access to Facebook and can see postings and, you know, whether it's of the final product, things that we're doing in the U.S. Um, and also we, we post about what's going on in the farm. And it's just so awesome to get likes or comments from the team members who are in Cameroon. So we're connected that way. We're working it from both sides. And something that just I think is very int- intriguing is um, Africa, for example, um, produces probably about 80 to 85 percent of the cacao of the world. But um, until now, Africa have not been presented as a, a place where you kind of actually grow high quality cocoa. I mean, I think it's, it has some, some economical reason behind it. Um, so um, the people in Cameroon, they are so happy, um, especially in, in the village, they're so happy to see that the chocolate made with cocoa coming from those, that region is actually being presented on the other side of the world as, uh, uh, in the West as uh, high quality cocoa for the first time. I think that's that makes us very happy, and that's something that we we knew that we can produce some great cocoa from with Cameroonian origins if we do the the right things. You know, fermentations, dryings. I mean, from all the way from the beginning to the end. Yeah, and if you don't mind, talk about that a little bit more. Um, if we were to go to visit this part of Cameroon, how does your farm? look or operate differently than, than maybe other farms there? Or is most of the difference in the post-harvest? I mean, you know, the farms, it's started with a farm. Our, our farms are very biodiverse. Uh, we have not only a lot of the natural trees, the baobabs and all the other trees that are very important for the system, but we also have our own you know, plantains, our you know, oranges, and also some low, low plants that we have implemented in the farm for many reasons, for biodiversity, also for to help feed our farmers and local villages. And, you know, the lighting is very well controlled. I mean, the sun lighting is very well controlled. The trees are very well pruned. The trees are very well spaced. It's very well organized. And, and then from there, we do very good harvesting. I mean, we don't include, uh, you know, part that, Cocoa pods that have been contaminated by any disease, and we only include pods that are very um, ripe and not underripe. And you know to make sure we have all the sugar, natural sugar in the in the cocoa. And then yes, and then fermentation is done very, you know, I would say professionally. You know, we make and do them in uh, well-controlled boxes, and we follow pH temperature uh, through the the process of uh, fermentations, and we do cut test. To, to kind of control the level of fermentations. And, and it's a very well-controlled environment where you have less to minimal to zero uh, interaction between the wet beans and the dust. That's where usually you get some of the lead contaminations. And then during drying, we dry on, on, on table bed and, and raise high enough and far enough from any risk of uh, dust. And sorting happen very professionally um, um, by the team. They're very mindful of why it's important to, to sort very well. Yeah, so we control and do our best to, you know, to make sure the process is very well done and very well controlled. Okay, and where's the name come from? Good yes. question. So, we wanted to make sure and get to that, yeah. Yeah, so the name is in Lingala. Lingala is a Congolese language. 
And the original meaning of uh, bibamba was is patch. Uh, let's say if you have a hole on your clothes, then you patch it with something. It's called bibamba. But then people start using it as a slang to say snack, something that you eat between two meals to hold your stomach. If you have a little hole in your stomach, you bibamba. So that's uh, yeah, the meaning. You patch up your hunger until the next meal. Yes, yes. exactly. So I'd love to get into the kind of your plans. So obviously, you know, you onboarded with a, a distributor, meaning that you're you're ready to expand. And um, so far, thus far, you're in mostly specialty stores. Natural distributor will service specialty stores, but also natural stores. So, you know, as an example, a Sprouts Farmer's Market is a natural store, but Market of Choice is more of a specialty store. So that's kind of the subtle difference between, you know, the, the types of, of grocery stores out there. Do you have a certain preference for, you know, what your strategy is? I think we are a really good fit for either or for both for, for natural foods and for specialty stores. You know, some feedback we get is our price point from customers. It can be a little bit surprising sometimes if you're not familiar with our backstory and everything that goes into what we're what we've developed and making our chocolate. So sometimes that's a better fit for specialty stores. However, as part of that making chocolate that works for everybody, we really do want it to be more accessible to customers who, you know, are shopping at natural food stores or, you know, even even a Kroger's or King Supers that, you know, sometimes they have natural food sections in their stores as well. We'd like to be present in more mainstream stores. And that's something we're working on. And as we scale, you know, obviously we hope, you know, the price can be more accommodating for some customers, but there is a value. There's a value to, to what we've created and all of the care and energy, the sustainability and the ethical side to the chocolate industry. And that's, that's what you're, you're getting. That's what you're paying for when you do buy a premium chocolate product. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I mean, you, the customer is doing it for, for him or herself. Because if you want to have a healthy you know, chocolate that has been made you know, sustainably and that is doing justice to the people who are actually creating the farm and, and uh, farming those cocoa beans, you know, it makes you feel better. It's, and I think it's a good thing for you, for your health and stuff. When you buy a, you know, $4 bars of chocolate in stores, Usually, less than twenty percent of that money actually reach the the farmers. Sometimes it's like even five cents. So you know, if you buy that chocolate, you know what's the chance that that chocolates uh, have not been processed after harvesting the right way? Um, I think that's a question that uh, we hope customers that thinking of and that the industry as a whole are thinking of and find ways to improve. And yeah, we, we like to be part of that, uh, that process. Amazing. Yeah, I, I think um, that's an awareness that people don't have, or maybe, you know, they, they think a little bit about sustainability or is this good for me, the ingredients, but, you know, the overall economy of chocolate and, and that supply chain all the way back to the farm, that all contributes to the price on the shelf. Right. And, and where the distribution of those costs go. So I think it's fabulous. So I want to talk a little bit about your experience when you initially went out with brand awareness, drawing people to your website initially when you were maybe just in a few coffee shops, but mostly selling at farmers markets and just online. And, and you, you had initially, I think, engaged an agency and spent some money on ads 
ads and then you had some learnings there. And, you know, for those in the audience that might be thinking about doing their own brand or, or, you know, selling a product online, any words of wisdom, anything you've learned and what you're doing now? I mean, yes. The first thing that would come in mind is uh, that the best way to uh, say a you know, food product is to make sure that people have an opportunity to try. So if you can build a strategy around that, it has a better conversion rate than um, spending money on ad. I think that's probably the starting, the best for me, the best starting point. And then collecting information about who are the people who are testing your product and coming back and try to understand also decide to test what is actually drawing them into coming back and buying your chocolate. And then that's when you collect that kind of information, I think that's legitimate way to actually start venturing into online marketing and trying to leverage those information. Otherwise, you just jump in it and then try so many things and spend a lot of money. And every opportunity that you have to basically um, get people to, to try a chocolate. And I mean, for me, I would prefer to give you know, free chocolate to people <laughs> than paying art and then get as much information that you can get from making people try your chocolate and then building on that to more arts. So, yeah, as founders and makers of the product, you know, we are highly invested and in, in knowledgeable when we're talking to our customers so we can answer, you know, nearly any question that comes our way. And um, there really are a lot of smart customers out there, you know, asking, oh, tell me about your sourcing. And then we get to say, boy, we got a story for you. So that's been fun. I think early on, you know, if we were to do it over, we'd probably stay away from ad agencies, you know, in any sort of big marketing. Social media has been a, a really good platform and it's a great way to more organically grow your followers and awareness. So even having someone who is able to make really good posts and stories and making use of those platforms has been really helpful for us. So yeah, getting to know your customer and then getting to know what their needs are, what resonates with them in terms of the parts of the product or the parts of the story, and then using that information to then perhaps put advertising or targeting dollars behind social. Exactly. Yes. And because right now, for example, we are um, actually doing some improvement on our website and gearing up with uh, a little bit of advertisement online. And this is basically based on what we uh, learn from our existing customers, from our exchange with them and our testing with them and stuff like that. Are you on Amazon? Very we, good question. Yeah, we are, we've been invited. There's a Black Business Accelerator program that we were recently invited to join. So. We have not been on it, but we'll, we'll be onboarding in the next couple of months as part of this, this program. Yeah, it has been very interesting. I don't know what uh, you think, um, Jennifer, but it has been very interesting because from the conversation that we had with Amazon, it's like, okay, our chocolate, has, we think, has a price and a cost. And people are not sure if Amazon will be the place to, to meet people who are looking for high-quality, uh, sustainably-made and grown chocolate. So we had that conversation with them and they feel that this is space for that on Amazon and we are happy to try. You know, we, we don't want to get into a platform where we would feel the pressure to make cuts because when you um, try to make those cuts, you know, where do you cut? We feel that uh, we are happy with what we are doing with our farmers, with our employees. You know, we want to continue to offer quality service, quality product. 
Yeah, no, for sure. You, you're thinking about that the right way. And, and certainly we could talk about Amazon and pricing strategy uh, and offline, but you know, something that I, I just would want to share with anybody listening, if you've got a product that you're selling out in the marketplace and you're thinking about getting into Amazon or vice versa, you're already on Amazon, you're going out to the store, the biggest thing you can do for yourself, the biggest favor that you can do is to not be and disadvantageously competitively priced in one channel than another. Um, you will find problems down the road with either Amazon or with your um, your retailer um, because they do compete with one another. They see themselves as competitors. So, you know, do the math and, and work your pricing and, and yeah, keep that pricing integrity is, is, is the best advice. Well, how much of this is is kind of only possible, Patrick, because you're from Cameroon? I mean, would this be possible for somebody who sees the same opportunity you do, but doesn't have the background and the history with the country? Um, I don't really believe that it won't be possible. I think a big part is um, your initial intent, your motivations. I mean, if you really want to do things the right way, you get in touch with the people on the farm and in the village and, and learn the local people and learn. We really wanted to do that that way, and we um, and that's why we decided to do it. If, if I want to start a farm in in Ghana one day, I would probably or Mexico, I probably go there and, and get in touch with local people and learn about a little bit more about the realities and what people need, what could be done to make things work the way I want. And, and before I start, I think it's possible. Wow. This is so cool. Now, I, I appreciate I've never talked to somebody who's kind of done uh, what you two have done. And I agree with Jennifer, you know, chocolate's such an interesting category and um, it's very, very cool. Well, it sounds like people can go pick up some of your chocolate right now uh, in a lot of places and soon to be anywhere Amazon serves, which as far as I can tell is everywhere. And I think a good way to, to pick up our product will be on our website, bibamba.com, uh, B-I-B-A-M-B-A. Com. So that, that could be a good way. Well, a, another fantastic uh, episode. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for, for, for finding this story and, and introducing us to Patrick and Mara. Really enjoyed that. Um, and I understand that that uh, you have talked to them about a special offer uh, specifically for our listeners. That's right. So Patrick and Mara are really trying to get the word out and they want everybody to try their products. So for the listeners of Future of Ag, there is a 20% off code. You can go to their website, thebamba.com. And if you enter Future of Ag 20, you will receive 20% off of your order. Well, very cool. There you go. We'll leave that uh, code as well as their website in the show notes. Thank you, Jennifer, one more time for making this story happen. Thank you, of course, to both Mara and Patrick Chenu for being on today's program. Thank you to Calgary Economic Development for being our quarterly presenting sponsor. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 